Actually, a week ago, we recorded an episode with uh, one of my, I would say, we're, we're becoming good friends. Um, and after kind of stewing in it, it was funny because I think I was thinking that it was not the best conversation we had ever had. And I kind of just didn't say anything about it. And then I got a text message from Andrew basically saying he thought we didn't have a great conversation either. And, you know, I still was kind of hesitant to even bring it up to Manny because, you know, it's, it's, there's work involved and, you know, you, you, you're always hypercritical of everything. Right. And, you know, I texted Manny and said, I think the podcast was trash we could do a lot better. And Manny pretty much right away texted me back and said, yeah, it definitely wasn't our best work. And I think that we had, you know, we, we have way more potential in that particular conversation. So it's interesting that, you know, when you have a level of, uh, I, I guess you will say vulnerability with the people that you're close with, especially when you talk about people who share some sort of artistic medium or creative medium, you know, that you can be open about the process and kind of come to the same, the same conclusion, which was this wasn't our best work and we, we can do way better. So with that said, you know, I'd like to kind of invite into this conversation my dear friend, Andrew, um, and greetings. Yeah. Thank you very much for doing this again with us. I just, I wanted to be open about that because I think that it's going to create, um, much better context for how this next conversation I hope will go. Well, and can I just say, Dave, first of all, it's great to be here. Hi everybody. Hi Manny. Welcome. Welcome back one more time. Thank you. Uh, this was all just a ploy on my part to uh, to spend more time with you guys. I actually tanked, I intentionally tanked the last interview, and uh, I'm going to tank this one. So get ready for try number three. No, seriously though, um, I I I think it's so funny, David, that you were already thinking that because I mean I think you know me well enough to to know this about me. But Manny, you obviously don't. We've never met in person yet, but. Um, you know, I agonized about texting you. I agonized. I didn't, you know, I, your show's relatively new. I've had one for about four years. You know, I I didn't want to seem like, you know, like I was, you know, it wasn't my business technically. It's your show, you know. But I think there's a lesson in there for people because in my heart, I knew that the conversation we recorded last week wasn't one Tenth as entertaining as any of the times we've just like hung out, you know, and had a meal or or seen each other at a conference or whatever, um, uh, you know. And I just felt like we we kind of just missed it. I don't know for whatever reason it happened. I'm, I'm going to explain I, the science to you, 
and I know exactly what it is. So I think anyone who's been on the dating circle for long enough has had a, a situation in which there was too much kind of, I, w- I would guess you would say, anticipation put on finally sleeping with someone. And you keep missing your mark, like the, you know, something, but there's a ton of chemistry there, right? And you're just like, oh man, I love, dude, she, that, that, you know, that person's dope, super fine, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, like wh- one day I'm uh, I'm gonna smash that. Yeah. And, you know, I think that was Andrew and I with this podcast. We always knew we were meant to smash. <laughs> <laughs> and... You know, it's just got to this thing where it's like, finally, you get that moment and there's too much anticipation. And, and, and you let it go too soon. <laughs> you, you, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or it's awkward or you just don't know what's going on. You know, you're just like, it's just not happening. And this I, and, is why we get along so well, David, because this is a case study in opposites attracting because there's about <laughs> there's about five things in what you just said that I would never have said. <laughs> I think it's important to but really, agree with, but I agree with all of it. <laughs> I think it's important to really, you know, voice what's on the inside and let it be on the outside. So I'm, I'm going to start off with this question. And I feel like I've harassed you about this a lot over the past year. You know, now it feels like a year, but more, or give or give or take eight months. And I think I've made it very clear that I feel like the food media in general, should be doing more on behalf of the industry um, because I think that they're a part of the industry and I feel like they profit from the industry. Um, The last time we spoke, you kind of have mixed feelings about that. So I'm just going to start with this question. What do you think the responsibility is of the food media to this industry during the pandemic, if they have one at all? Well, I think, I mean, I find it very complicated and I, I made this comment to you on the, on the one that we took a flyer on the show that we're, you know, is in the, is in the, the mulligan, the mulligan, the mulligan, uh, you know, uh, the food writing, you know, that used to, that meant something very different years ago than it means now. I mean, now food media, I mean, it could mean anything from covering, you know, me too stuff to covering uh, social inequities as they're reflected in the restaurant industry to everything in between to, of course, you know, recipes and restaurant reviews and all that. Um, uh, You know, I think if you put it in stark, like technical black and white terms, you know, journalists in general are supposed to be objective uh, pe- people who cover a certain area or a certain beat or whatever, you know, objectively, they're not really supposed to be in bed with uh, the, the people they cover. Um, and that's that's sort of the that's sort of the conventional wisdom. You know, I, I do find this is just for me personally that, you know, this is a very unique industry to cover. First of all, it's, it's a very social industry, and a lot of us in the media do have personal relationships with people on your side of the fence. A lot of people might pretend they don't, but generally speaking, most journalists in this world do. Um, most people gravitate, I believe, and at least initially, toward covering restaurants and, and food uh, out of a personal passion for it. You know, there's an awful lot of people who cover this industry who are former cooks or caterers or 
passionate home cooks. Um, so, you know, for me personally, I don't know that I would call it a responsibility, but I would like to think that people who do cover this industry would be trying to find ways to kind of buck up or buttress the industry within the within the lane of being a journalist. Does that make sense? Like, I think there, there, there ought to be an extra effort made to find stories that might help a greater number of restaurants survive, you know, this existential crisis that they're in. Um, I don't know that doing that is, is necessarily, objectively speaking, part of the job description. Does that make sense? Sure. Um, I think there's a lot of things not in the job description, though, right? Like, I mean, when you talk about what's in the chef's job description, is it, you know, is philanthropist part of that? But no, but every single uh, charity in the world reaches out to chefs first to see what they can do to sell, you know, gift certificates or auction off dinners or do some sort of gala dinner, right? Like that's not in our job description. You know, uh, when you think about, uh, you know, first responders or second responders to any sort of, you know, global catastrophe um, or, you know, kind of whether it's, uh, you know, a hurricane or earthquake or fires or whatever, who do people look to past, you know, the first responders? I, I always call us the second responders, right? Because we are always called upon then to go help. I don't think it's all about what's in your job description. I think that what I'm talking about more is community. And as you pointed out, you know, there's a lot of folks on, as you said, your side of the fence that are in some level of friendship or relationship with folks that work within the industry. That being said, beyond that, I would think that there should be a, maybe a self-preservation thing in the sense of if this industry is not around, if it completely crumbles, I mean, yeah, sure, they'll still find things to write about. You know, I mean, hell, they'll write the death watch of restaurants as they've proven they will. They'll, they'll write obituaries. They'll write, you know, nasty, you know, uh, reviews about restaurants that should have never opened, right? And I think that, you know, it would be nice. And it's funny, since we've had this conversation, we've had this conversation now twice in the span of a week. And in the span of a week, I've now seen two major publications, both the New York Times and Eater, go to bat for the restaurant industry, which I yes. found to be incredibly um, energizing for me to finally see it felt like the cav uh, cavalry. Because over the past eight, nine months, I feel like a lot of us have felt like the only thing we can do is go out and write op-eds because nobody is speaking up on our behalf. The press is not speaking up on our behalf. And it was, in, it was really revitalizing to my faith. But, you know, I, I still think it was about six months too late, but I'll take, I'll take it rather than nothing. You know, so I guess, you know, maybe it's not responsibility, but like, you know, what about the community? Do you not view us as all being a part of the same community? Well, I do, but, and I'm not familiar with the Eater piece, but, you know, it's interesting, David, because the New York Times support, which I think is what you're referring to, yeah. was actually an op-ed, right? Uh, and it wasn't by a reporter, it was by the editorial board. 
Um, so it's, you know, the people that you're asking me about actually did not ride in on a white horse in the New York Times. It was the editorial board. Um, and so what's, what's the distinction between those people it, who are not journalists? So for us people who aren't journalists, can you, can you explain the distinction between those groups? Well, there's the editorial, I don't even know exactly who comprises the editorial board, but it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's what it sounds like. It's the people who call the shots on, uh, you know, on the opinion page, uh, uh, you know, it's not, um, uh, or at least not an accredited way. It's not, um, you know, the members of the food writing staff, you know, of the, of the food section. See, uh, I, I'm not sure if I buy that all the way. Why, why I, then focus on the restaurants? I, I, I feel like there well, has to be some, some level of assumption that people like Pete Wells and those people were part participated in this. Do you, do you think that's an unreasonable, um, you know, I would say leap to take? Uh, I don't think it's no. I don't think it's an unreasonable theory. It, it, it certainly occurred to me. I don't know why uh, it wouldn't have the, those people's names on it. For that's accurate, I think wasn't it Tajal recently did a piece that appeared on the editorial page? I think so. Tajal Rowe. I what think was so. it about? Huh? What was it about? I don't remember. It was about this moment. I can't remember exactly. Might have been about whether or not to eat outdoors. I can't remember exactly. I've read so many, I mean, as we all have, I've read so many good pieces lately, but I believe that was an op-ed piece. And, um, uh, I don't know. I mean, yes, I would, I would, I would like to think that there were some food writers who, um, you know, who were a part of that essay. And, and I have to say also that, um, you know, it would seem to me very much in line with uh, like someone like Pete Wells, I, I think clearly uh, considers himself, you know, a populist. And I think he would like to see uh, the, I, I don't know. I don't know him personally at all, but I have to imagine from his, you know, the, 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 the persona and the philosophy that he puts forth in his writing, that he's probably, a, a, you know, a cheering for the Restaurant Act personally. Um, I think probably a lot of these people are. But wasn't that New York? Op-ed, wasn't it also connected with advocating for the end of indoor dining? Weren't those two thoughts united? I think they were. Yeah, but I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that because one thing, yeah. you know, I think they're, they're both realistic facts, which is if we're talking about indoor dining being the cause of the spread of COVID or playing a major role in it, right? Whether it does or doesn't more so than other activities, I, I don't want to necessarily litigate right now, but if we are saying that, then we also need to say in the same breath that we are forcing businesses to shut their doors. We are looking at an entire industry that is collapsing, one that's probably being hit harder than any other industry in America today. It will get hit from the earliest onset and probably recover the latest. And you also look at the fact that it employs more people than any other private industry or private, um, you know, privately owned business in America. It also adds more to the GDP and the tax basis than any other industry in America. And so when you think about the self-preservation of the country, it makes sense that if you are advocating to close indoor dining across the board till this is over, that you should in the same, you know, in the same breath be organizing 
you know, relief and, and, and fighting for relief. Manny, let me ask you a question. In the music industry, you are seeing a lot of people writing, you know, in terms of you're seeing a lot of the, um, you know, whether it's publications or music journalists kind of writing about the Save Our Stages and all of that kind of different stuff where they're advocating for relief on, on that end. Right. Do you feel like there is a different relationship between the folks in the music industry and their kind of counterparts in the press or the media? Um, I feel like there's, uh, there's always an interest, right? Like, uh, billboard for instance, is probably like the, the most, you know, prolific, uh, uh, media, uh, conglomerate, right. That covers the music industry and they kind of set the tone and Rolling Stone as well. Um, but the people who actually work in the industry, um, and with respect to like live sound concerts, that is like the heavy driver of everything, which employs so many people. It's a it's a tangible thing, right? When you go to a, a concert, it's tangible. Someone sitting in a studio creating music, it's not really ta- as tangible as a chef in a kitchen. So a lot of people can't really identify with the with the creation of music for the most part because you know it's 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 something you listen to. And it's easy to kind of take it for granted. But going back to like the journalism of it. I think that I think they kind of identify with each other a lot because they rely on each other. But is there a contentious relationship? <clears throat> um, I think so. Because I feel like, and Andrew, you can stop me if I'm wrong, but I feel like over the past couple of years, the relationship between the food media and the industry, you know, whether it's the restaurant industry or the food industry or whatever as a whole, has felt more, I would say, um, it's, it's felt like it's been deteriorating. Do you feel like that's true or do you just think there's more, or maybe there is just more media, you know, more outlets for media and more restaurants. So you just see more, more cases. I don't know, Andrew, what, what's your thoughts? Cause you've been in this game now for, for quite some time. You're not a spring chicken. Um, you know, you, you've been doing this for a while, did you feel like at some point there was more cohesiveness between the industry and the media? Are you, do you want to add a couple of more uh, ways to phrase that I'm old before I answer? <laughs> I mean, you're you not new. You're not new to the industry or the earth. Spent three different ways <laughs> with, with 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 your many years of wisdom. There you go. Um, you know. Um, Listen, uh, do I feel like it's gotten more contentious? Yeah, totally. Who does it? Uh, I, I, I think it's become, it's funny because they're separate entities, but I do think it's become a little bit like a, ta- a dog chasing its tail. Um, you know, there's this, there's this vicious circle. I think for the longest time, uh, people were, you know, food media, it was, it was all adoration, right? Like for decades, it was all adoration. You know, here's the next hot chef. This is the next hot restaurant. Um, uh, here's the next TV show. And, and you know, a lot of- I mean, unless you were getting shit on, right? Well, maybe you were getting a bad review, but then, you know, in the last several years, um, I think the, the media, and, and to be honest, in principle, the, uh, you know, I, I have no problem with this, you know, has been looking into and, and writing about all different, less appealing aspects of both the industry 
and individual people and individual restaurants, right? Um, and I think this is a very, very, very convoluted thought I'm trying to get out. But I think that A, uh, there's still a little bit of a, you know, like a like a stunned reaction by the by 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 chefs and restaurateurs and you know people on the food side of the equation. Um, so then they get very upset. And then journalists get very upset that people have the temerity to like push back on a critic or a journalist. They feel like, you know, people should just kind of take it quietly, which I also don't agree with. Um, uh, so I think you get into this kind of vicious circle. And I think the, the kind of subcategory of article I would talk about, which honestly, David, in some respects, I feel is at the core of what you're asking me is that there are things that are written that just seem so uh, either jerky or intellectually dishonest or really poorly timed, uh, almost kind of cruel uh, in their either content or timing. And, you know, there have been a lot of articles that I think, you know, I'll give you an example, okay? There was, the, there was a piece a couple of weeks ago, you know, the restaurant at Meadowood had a terrible fire burned to the ground and there was a piece in the Chronicle detailing how, you know, it was a restaurant that earned a lot of acclaim. And in the piece, a lot of people who loved working there were quoted. And there were a number of people who described, you know, confrontations with the chef, Chris Costow, who described, I can't remember the exact details offhand, but, you know, some people were saying they felt like some of, uh, you know, the incidents that were being described were kind of based in, I mean, it was kind of intimated that, you know, there was maybe some, uh, I don't know if you'd call it chauvinism or prejudice, or I don't know what, I don't, I can't remember the exact details offhand, but that piece was written, I believe, published less than a week after that restaurant burned to the ground. And, you know, my own feeling, and I think the feeling of a lot of people was, if you want to examine those subjects, you know, fine to do it when it was still standing, fine maybe to do it a little bit in the future, but why in the world do you need to do that when, you know, the, the place is still smoldering probably? Um, am I accurate, David? I feel like you're talking about these kind of moments. I feel you're talking about the kind of gleeful pile-on that happened to Jessica Coslow, who I don't know personally at all. I mean, I I, I was introduced yeah. to her the night I had dinner at, her, at one of her restaurants. We, I'm, She's not a friend or an enemy of mine. I just don't know her, which I say because I don't have a, you know, I don't really have a horse in that race. But, you know, she was, it was just, she was like a pinata for about two weeks. She was and fucking eviscerated. Was- she was eviscerated. And, and, but let's, let's, let's call it what it was. She was absolutely taken to the town square and she was gutted. Uh, her business took such a massive hit. It was like, I think literally the week that her book was coming out, she, um, and, and listen, I, I don't know her that well and I'm not going to go to, what was the, what was the catalyst for, for the, the catalyst? Yeah, we should, we should okay. This. So, yeah. so for those who aren't familiar and we've talked about this on the show a couple of times, we talked about it with Dom Cren is Jessica Kozlow basically got ca- called out for basically three main things. One was saying that, you know, and she's famous for making jams. And basically that because jams are seasonal, you get a bunch of fruit 
at one point of the year, you make a bunch of jams and it's preserving, right? Yeah. And basically she got called out for doing it, um, you know, the wrong way. And there was like buckets of like with mold on top. And, you know, th and I'll say, and I say that to you and I'm looking though, you know, I'm looking directly at Manny right now and, and his face like looks kind of like taken back by it. But I'll tell you, anyone who's ever worked in any restaurant will tell you that the amount of times that there is mold on things that is not really that dangerous of a situation, that it gets kind of like taken off. Um, you know, like granted, there are limits to this, right? right but, of but, course. But there, like mold growing on top of things that aren't jarred right or canned right or preserved right um, can be something you can fix without getting rid of it. Now, whether or not she followed those rules, how deep you go before you like, and how much of it you throw away. I don't know. I wasn't there and I'm not going to argue with the people that were there. The second thing that she got called out for was basically appropriation of other people's recipes. One thing that I think is absolute and utter bullshit. Um, and I'll t talk about that in a second. Why Andrew and I'll, I'll get you uh, your opinion on this. And then the third thing was basically that she just wasn't a very nice person um, or, or wasn't a nice manager or wasn't like it didn't give enough like credit to people. So the first thing, you know, I, uh, I take umbrage with because everyone made it sound like it was absolutely the craziest thing ever that a restaurant ever had mold on something. Like, were they trying to, like, come, like make it come off, like, as neglect? They or, like, sent pictures out into the world saying, here's this bucket of mold, and that's what you're eating when you're eating there, right? Oh, damn. Yeah, and, and it yeah, went story, absolutely story, viral. That literally will destroy your story, whole business, like, right? She was, yeah, this story, this story, Manny, was broken on Instagram by someone. Wow. Like just a random uh, patron. Like oh, a, an employee. Does, like does a, does a form of, you know, what they, of, uh, you know, I guess investigative reporting or whatever they refer to it as, but they do it via an Instagram account. And so here's the thing, you know, the mold thing, whatever, I, I'm not going to, I wasn't there. I can't argue as to whether or not she was doing it the right way or the wrong way. And so I, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. The only thing I will say is if you're eating at any restaurant tonight, there is a very, very strong chance that there is some mold somewhere and not always is the thing that it's attached to being discarded. And that isn't always a thousand percent that bad. And, and I just like, and I know that everyone, the people who don't get it are going to listen to this and cringe. But the fact of the matter is if you go to our Salumeria in the restaurant and you stare outside at all those salamis that are standing there with like white covering on them, that's not a sheath. Yeah, that's mold. That's mold. <laughs> so yeah. there, there is differences in mold and, and a varying degree into how dangerous it is and so on and so forth. Whatever. I, that, that's a rabbit hole. The thing that I really took, in, like really, really just took umbrage with and I was like, I'm so thrown off by this discussion is the idea of having to give credit to anyone that helped develop recipes because for some reason they have some creative authorship on that. And here's the issue with that is when you're getting paid to work for someone and it's in your job description to help come up with menu ideas, help develop recipes, to write the recipes, to log the recipes, to cost the recipes, to participate in that process, your credit is the check. 
right? And right. Andrew and I have joked about this before. Anyone who's uh, a fan of the show Mad Men, um, you know, will always think back of that, like that iconic episode where you know Don Draper uh, looks at you know his his protege and basically says, "That's what the fucking money is for." Right? Is you that was what your job was. Right. And you weren't working as an independent contractor. You weren't working as a consultant. You weren't working as a you were working as an employee. And the person basically gave you guidance on what they wanted or they didn't. And you came up with something within that business structure. And now it belongs to the business. Yeah. And whether or not the chefs decide to go out, whether it's on Instagram or in a book or whatever, to credit you with that. And I think it would be very nice. It would be very courteous of the chef to do that. But I also think that it is in no way a necessity. And so, Andrew, I think that was my point. And, and you and I went back and forth on that and talked about it. And, you know, I think that was my issue is that sh the reaction to her was an absolute dismantling of her and everything she's worked on and everything she's built and I'm not sure that you come back from something like that. So I guess, you know, what I want to kind of put back towards you is where do you think the responsibility lies within the food media to get it right before they kind of go out and kind of just share all the information they, that they have? Do you think that there needs to be some level of accountability on the food, uh, you know, like what's true and what's not true. Fact, like, like fact checking. Well, I mean, it's fact checking, but it's also like how damning is this response going to be and how, how much are you kind of proliferating it out yeah, there? Yeah, am I blowing this out of proportion, right? Well, exactly. Like what's the context, I guess. So Andrew, do you have an opinion on where the press should kind of fall out on this? Well, I mean, this is kind of what I was saying before, you know, when I when I made the point that I think there's this um, uh, I think that under the under the under the guise of, you know, I'm a journalist, I'm objective, right, that that people just kind of oftentimes behave in either a very jerky or um, a sadistic almost or even intellectually dishonest way. You know, one thing that really stuck with me around um, the Jessica Coslow thing was it was it was like, you know, I, I don't know. I don't live in L.A. You know, I don't know what the whole dynamic is there. Clearly, people were eager for an opening, right, to, to you know, hunting season uh, was open on Jessica Coslow. Uh, uh, you know, there was a piece in that whole uh, period of time where Eater wrote a piece and they mention that she doesn't credit her collaborator, her book collaborator, on the cover of the book. Now, the first book I ever did, I wasn't credited on the cover. That's what uh, isn't that what liner notes are for? Well, it depends. I mean, that's what collaboration. But, it, but it's also. Are for. But isn't that, that is contractual? Yeah, that is something you negotiate. You're usually not even you. Usually, you know, the writer's agent and the chef's agent work out a deal, and very often, if it's somebody's first book or Sometimes the writers don't even care. Um, you know, you you often don't get a credit in your first time as a collaborator. Um, it's totally normal. And when I read the sentence in that piece, I was like, boy, these guys are really straining 
to make a point, you know, because, and when you talked about fact checking before, David, I, I don't know, I don't know that anything that's been said is factually inaccurate, right? But there's, there's no calibration, there's no contextualizing. And I think a lot of times people don't do the hard work to understand whether it's the science or industry norms or whatnot. So, you know, in the case of the mold, I can't tell you how many chefs told me that as bad as that photograph looked, it, it probably was not actually any kind of a health hazard. They probably just, you know, trimmed it away. Right. But it looked horrible. Um, now, I'll be really honest with you guys, because I promised you I would when I came on the show. You know, I had been hearing that from people, and I was not about to stick my name on an article saying that because the, the tide was so strong in, in her direction that I felt like to get into it would A, be met by deaf ears, and B, you know, I would be the next... You know, I'd be the next victim of the mob, you know? Um, that that seems at all times like a real possibility. Um, so, I mean, it, it gets a little crazy, you know? And, and uh, uh, you know, and the thing that, that's the thing about, you know, so the jam and then the credit thing, as you said, you know, that's very normal. Um, that's generally expected in a lot of kitchens. Um, you know, that people are going to contribute ideas. A lot of people consider that a great opportunity. You know, you, the chefs will help you, uh, you know, hone your style, hone an idea. You know, it's, it's like uh, it's a learning opportunity for you as a young cook. I mean, I can't tell you how many people over the years when I've interviewed them, you know, to get their story, they tell me about the first time they got a dish on you know, at a restaurant where they worked and how excited they were by that. Well, I mean, um, here, how about this? Like, I'll give, I'll give you an, let me, go ahead. Let me say one last thing though, because I do think this is important. Um, you know, and I say it all the time, David, and it's something I, you know, I, I am in my fifties now and it's something whenever a topic like this comes up, you know, it's one of the first things I do say to myself is things change, right? So just cause it's always been this way and I don't have a problem with the fact that it's been this way. You know, I, you know, is the is the is the up and coming, arriving generation of cooks and chefs and restaurateurs going to have a different point of view on this? Uh, you know, is there anything wrong? I went to Gramercy Tavern a few weeks ago, and I don't know how long Mike Anthony's been doing this on the menu, but at the bottom of the menu, it said, you know, our team, and it listed like, I don't know, 15, 18, 20 names, and to me that is for sure right now, you know, a way, at least for the time being, a way to maybe make everyone around this topic somewhat happy and say, you know, the implication of that is these are people who are cooking, these are people who are contributing ideas, these are the people, you know, whose efforts went into your meal today, right? And do you have a problem with that? I, I don't, and I don't really have a problem in time with people finding a new level for this, you know, in terms of what kind of credit people get. Personally, I think it starts to look a little silly if you start having on the menu, you know, the so-and-so so-and-so dish by Andrew Friedman, you know, on, uh, uh, I mean, first of all, how many people create a dish themselves 100%? If you're riffing on something that already exists, you know, nobody, you know, half the, most of the stuff that you get in a restaurant 
has a dotted line back before any of us were born, right? You know, right, those people are getting well. Credited. Listen, I want to so answer. I, I, I want to answer. I want to answer what you you just said. You you said, do I have a problem with that? And the answer is no. I don't have a problem with that. I also don't have a problem with not seeing it. Right. I also don't have like if you come to K Fico, you know whose me- name you won't see on the menu. You won't see my name on the menu because I don't want to put my fucking name on the menu. I'm tired. Like, I I think, honestly, to me, it's a complete and utter waste of space because I know who, you know, I know whose restaurant it is and I know that I don't do all the work. Yet putting my name on the menu like so many of my predecessors had, like, to me, it just doesn't seem... Like, it makes any sense. I, I just don't get it. And, but that's my choice. I guess my point is here is everyone knows what they sign up for, right? And then there's things that are illegal and, and, and immoral, right? Like, you can't treat people like complete shit, right? Because there's laws and there's also just, you know, what's considered to be common decency. But beyond that, Everyone signs a handbook. Everyone signs, uh, well, I mean, I don't know, at least here, if you come to work here, you're going to sign a handbook, you're going to sign a offer letter, which is going to say the scope of your work, and within the scope of your work, it's going to say that you have all of these things that are on your plate, including other things, right? Including, like, other responsibilities. And everyone knows what they're signing up for, and they know what their pay rate is. But you know what it never says on the offer letter or in the handbook or anything like this? Is that you are going to receive credit for anything. And that's the thing that I'm, like, trying to, like, you know, uh, that, uh, that I'm just trying to wrap my mind around is, like, why is it the role of, the, you know, everyone else Basically saying, well, you know, she, why isn't she crediting her, her chef de cuisine that came up with a French toast recipe? Really? That person came up with a French toast recipe? They created that French toast recipe? I would be willing to bet money that they've probably seen something like that in their life and they, you know, saw that and borrowed a uh, part of it and added another part, which was their own, and brought it to a space that they never would have been in had she not provided it doing a job that they never would have been doing had she not paid them to do it, selling something based on a brand and an idea that she created and, and, and sold. And what I'm saying is that, like, listen, you know, in every industry, there's an example of this. And But for some reason, in our industry, it's now becoming this, like, crusade that basically, like, sh- uh, like chefs, they're trying to find new reasons to shit on all of them. You know, like if you're a speechwriter, does, you know, does Barack Obama get done with the best speech you've ever heard in your life and, be, and then finish up by saying, by the way, that was written by this guy, fucking big ups. No, absolutely not. But that was the job they agreed to. And so I, I get, go ahead. I don't disagree with anything you're saying. I don't disagree with anything you're saying. But, you know, when these moments are active, and I do admire this about you, David, you know, you will go on Twitter or come on your show and, you know, just say how you feel, you know, about... I'm actively this. looking I, for reasons to get canceled. Yeah. And, uh, well, I told you when I, I said when I, you know, when I commit career suicide, it'll be on your show. Um, <laughs> that's, that, that's an honor, by the way. Thank you very much. Oh, but, you know, 
where else would I go? But, um, you know, I don't disagree with anything you're saying. I, I think there's a whole probably other subtext to everything uh, that was going on there. You know, uh, I think it seemed to me very personal as these things often do. That it felt you very know? personal. You're absolutely right. It, it, it did feel like a very lot of personal. In LA, for whatever reason, uh, don't like Jessica Kozlov. And you know what? Yeah. And, 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 and let me just say this I don't know her, but maybe she's an asshole. But it's your right to be an asshole. You don't have to be the most perfect person in the world. And, and actually, I want to kind of, I want to change gears because this, I think this is a great segue to talk about something else that you and I have talked about before. And, and, and I want to get your take on it because I, wanna, uh, I, I do want to have an open and honest conversation around the idea of mental health, right? Because I think a lot of people don't realize that a lot of us who have made it in this career or even got like went in the direction of this career went that way because we have a certain particular personality type right usually we're uh types of people that thrive in very chaotic environments we're the type of people that can take uh, an enormous amount of pressure or internalize rather an enormous amount of pressure we're people who don't mind uh, you know, sacrifice or martyrism or, or whatever you want to call it, right? And I think there's been this level of surprise over the past like four or five years about, you know, all of these people and personalities in our industry who have ended up being kind of either terse or complete dickheads or, um, you know, manic depressive or uh, bipolar or, you know, you, you take your pick. And I don't think that it's causal necessarily. I think in a lot of ways it's correlative. People come to this industry because that's the way their mindset works and because there was like a, a safe harbor for people who could not have gotten along in, in, in an office, in a nine to five office. You know, it just made sense. When I was 14 years old or 13 years old, I walked into a kitchen for my first time to wash dishes and people were cursing, it was loud, people were going, and all of a sudden I felt at home. It was the first time I ever felt like anything made sense. In a classroom, I was so lost. But in a kitchen, the second I walked in, it was like I saw the writing on the wall, I understood everything, right? And you know, I, I wanna shift gears a little bit to t talk about this because I think that one thing that the media has not really spent enough time talking about is the fact that a lot of us in this industry are people with either some level of mental health uh, issues, learning disabilities, um, come from uh, challenging backgrounds, uh, substance abuse issues that are easy to hide in this industry. Um, you, 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 like I said, you can name it and it exists in this industry. And I think that we are getting finally to a point where we're talking about it more but I think that the media plays a m major role in, I think, um, inflaming or irritating those things that are naturally occurring because of, of the level of spotlight and pressure and, and potential fame and fortune and all of these things that media promises to chefs and restaurateurs and psalms and bartenders and all of these people who are hoping to kind of make it in this career. Do you have any thoughts on that? Wow, that's pretty deep. So wait, you're saying that some of the behavior that gets criticized in the press is behavior 
that is possibly an extension of or in part caused by some of these um, these various issues that a lot of people in the industry have? Is that am I getting it? Well, I mean, that's certainly what I'm saying. I'm saying that okay. the people that the people that run to this industry that are gravitated towards this industry tend to be a certain type and oh, because yeah. they're able to hide out in this industry. Yes. So I, I hear, okay. I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying. I mean, I, agree, I mean, I, I don't know if you read my last book, but I, I mean, I've written and, I, and I, just so you know, I read, I read it like a little bit constantly and I've already <laughs> read it once and I like to, I feel like there's always little fun anecdotes. It's an amazing book. Well, thank you. But I, you know, I talk about this a little bit in there and it's a conversation I've had on this, on my own show with a million times. Um, I think everything you're saying is true. Um, I also think a lot of chefs are probably on the spectrum, you know, uh, uh, I, I, which came out of actually a conversation I once had. I took a bunch of notes and, and found a, um, a Fifth Avenue psychiatrist who was a foodie through a mutual friend and he gave me an hour of time. And I went in with a bunch of notes and I said, what would you diagnose someone with all these traits? And, you know, he said, I think, I think what you're describing is po quite possibly people who are on the spectrum to some extent. Um, in, in that case, what he was talking about was, he said, these people sometimes socially awkward. <laughs> you know? And I just started laughing. I said, yes, you know, and you used the word terse, David. I mean, I can't tell you how many times am I, and I'm talking about even some of my very close friends, you know, I'll send a very heartfelt, carefully worded, you know, long text or email to somebody and they'll just write back, sounds good. You know? Like uh, yeah, I mean, that's like gu the guilty. guilty. That is the quintessential cook response, you know? And I'm, at this point, I just, you know, I just accept it as, as, you know, just part of the package. But for a long time, I found it very, you know, rude and disarming and hurtful if it was somebody I was close to. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, this again, I, I don't know, you know? I feel like... I feel like maybe you're asking that journal or expecting that journalists are going to go past deep beyond what their role is. Like, I think, is it beyond their role? I See, that's where, so, but that's where I want to push back but, on you. But, is but isn't the, aren't the journalists aren't, aren't every, they're on the same team, right? Like if they're, they're if not, they really, they're, no, they're I couldn't, not. I couldn't they're tell not. you, they this feel is, like they're on opposite teams, but if no, they're, they're, if they're covering, the, if they're covering the food industry, they, they rely on that industry for their, for their uh, content. So I agree like, with you. That's a, that is from the, from the journalist point of view, that is irrelevant, and huh. and and where do you um, where where do you draw the line between journalism and, and 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 being a critic? Is it one and the same, or is it like you know two different sides of the coin? I think being a critic is a form of journalism, and to me, ideally, it would be categorized somewhere in the realm of of uh, you know like consumer consumer advice or consumer service, customer you know uh, you know helping people know where to spend their time and their money. And is there, is there, do you think that critics have a bad rap? Uh, I think almost inevitable. Are you, are you asking me if they deserve a bad rap? Or I mean, they, I'm just saying, well, there's, there's an old saying, those who can't do teach. It's like, so. No, I mean, like, listen, I think, I think there have been those a who can't do critique. I, I don't know. I'm unbiased. I, I, I think there have been a number of, um, 
honorable critics. Um, I think there have been a number of critics who have been amazing writers. Um, you know, the late Jonathan Gold uh, is somebody I would put in both those categories. Um, I, I think, you know, where, where I think things break down very poignantly because I think the reaction of the industry and the reaction of the public are polar opposite uh, in, in direct proportion to how mean a critic is. So, for example, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people in New York, a lot of chefs and cooks have a huge issue, and I have to put a, uh, a disclaimer on this. He, he wrote a very uh, negative review of my book, and I took public exception to it. Uh, but that aside, you know, a lot of chefs in New York feel like Pete Wells can really be, you know, mean, just downright mean, you know, kick a, kick a person when they're down, you know, uh, take a restaurant down a star or two, and in the process, make a couple of really nasty jokes, right? And that really enrages cooks and chefs, right? But at the same time, there is nothing that the public, the general public, civilians who read those articles enjoy more, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, of course, because when you're driving down the freeway and you see a fucking accident and the car is burning to death and people are crawling out and their hair is on fire, yeah, you stop and take a look because... Everyone rubbernecks. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I think, listen, but there, there you know, what there should be a level of responsibility to go deeper to answer your earlier question. I think that if you're going to write about something, you have to understand the implication of what you're writing about. You will potentially either catapult or completely condemn someone's career. You will either save a business or dismantle one. And the level of context, I think, matters. Also to that end, when you talk about critics and reviews, I always found it to be incredibly strange that, you know, when I started cooking, the rule of thumb was that nobody, no critic would ever walk into a restaurant until three months. There was like a three-month grace period. And then on the first day of the three months, they would walk in. Um, and I feel like that timeline has become shorter and shorter and shorter. Well, um, you know why? You know why? Because... Because there's more c- competition and because at some point somebody started breaking those norms, right? And then people were like, okay, rules of engagement. If I want to be competitive as a critic, I'm going to have to go on these other, you know, this new time frame that's so been established. Are you, are you, are I you, think most critics would not want to review a restaurant in its first week or two or even visit. There's no point. Is that like the um, golden rule? A new restaurant opens, give it three months and then come in. And- it used to be. It used to be, and I and and I'll tell you, I even think that's too early. But you know, that like for me personally, as a cook, as a professional, right? I usually don't want to go to a new restaurant that's at least six months to a year. Like you want them to keep. I want to because I want to like you. That is the point. I don't want to find an excuse not to like you, and I think that's the issue. But here's the thing, and I feel bad, David, because I feel like you. Like, I feel like a lot of these are things that I want to give you a hug and tell you, like, yes, this is all morally horrible. But it's okay. I'm the in therapy is, for this, Andrew. But you know, you're open. You know, you're you're open for business for that first year. You're taking people's money for the first year. You're not 
it's not like you're offering it at a discount for the first year. Um, and so, so all of, all of that, uh, all of that sometimes is not true. Just so you know, so think about how many restaurants lose money in the first year of being open. It's not because I mean, sometimes if if they stay open a year, if they stay open, but, but, and that's like another thing I think that most media doesn't know. The majority of these businesses are hemorrhaging money in the first year, only trying to either a overstaff and not taking as much as many guests. Uh, they are keeping, by the way, their prices usually a little bit artificially lower than they would just because they want to get people in the door to start. Yes, right? 100%, 100%. And so to that end, yes, you are receiving a discount. You're getting a discounted, um, you know, Well, but David, experience. honestly, and I, I can't speak for you, but it, I mean, my perception of that practice is generally that it's, you know, it, yes, you're getting a discount, but it's not for good reasons. You're getting a discount so that when the reviews hit, you know, the pricing seems, you know, reasonable or seems whatever. Artificially low. Artificially low. And then once you get all the reviews in the bag, you know, game on, I can do whatever I want. I'm in the clear. Okay. Like but, but, but see, even, even, that's, but that's, that's even the, the way you're describing it sounds like something nefarious is going on. And that's another thing I take issue with. The thing that you just said was the difference between a business losing money to make you think that the prices are okay for you, like what you think it should cost. And you're going to write a review basically saying praising me or damning me because my prices are a certain amount when the business can't survive at that level. And then the business turns around and says, okay, we're going to raise the prices so we can actually survive here and, and earn some money. And even the connotation, you, someone who I know very well has an extreme amount of respect and adoration for the, for the folks in my side of the industry, even the way you phrased it, made it sound as if the restaurants were then going to take their clientele for a ride. When the majority of these folks are literally just trying to get past breaking even, if not losing money, when yeah, they raise they, their price. David, I, again, I, I'm not saying it was you. I mean, I'm not saying it's you. I'm not saying it's universal, but I'm sorry. I've known too many people who tell me I'm going to keep the prices down till the reviews, point blank. I, you know, I'm, not, and, I'm not arguing that point. I'm not arguing and, that but, point. But, but what I am same, saying is you're keeping it artificially token, low. But by the same token, in non-COVID uh, times, you know, when when there were fully staffed restaurants, uh, you know, this pre, you know, pre-review chefs there every night. You know, reviews are all in. You know, off on the off on the event circuit, which is you know that's fine too. But I'm just saying it is. Well, know, here, how is, about how about another example? How about a, it is, there are different practices pre and post review. I'm just saying. Okay, I'm just but being, I'm just being totally honest, and but, it's not always for noble reasons. Okay, but let me let me ask you another question, right? Because what you just said was okay. Th- there's some people who do that, but I guess I want to ask you, why is it that the press? thinks or the media thinks or people and and people generally feel this because the public is telling or the press is telling them to feel this way but why do why does the media feel like they have some level of ownership over what the chef should be doing with their time and this ties again into the mental health aspect of this is you know that's another thing and you literally just brought it up without me having to say it is the fact that there is this expectation that a chef should always be cooking the meals for you or should always be in the restaurant 
taking care of people right. or else the restaurant is not as good. And I guess my- Which is completely, completely stupid. Well, it is completely stupid because if you're a good manager and you're a good chef, then your restaurant should be as good when you're not there. Right? Right. And- 100%. My point is like when we talk about the mental health aspect of this and why a lot of the folks in this industry- are so challenged right now with mental health, with substance abuse, with all, because the level of expectation and pressure on them to constantly be there, to constant, and it's not just from them, it's from the staff too. If, if you know, it took me, I think, you know, a, a while to get comfortable with even looking at my staff and saying, you know what, guys, I'm not working six days this week. You know what, guys, I'm taking a weekend off. You know what, guys, I'm leaving early because I'm going to go be with my daughter or put her down for bed or eat dinner with my family, right? And there's all of these different things that I felt a, a, a level of kind of pressure to, you, you know, oh, my God, no, people are going to think that I'm not here all the time. They're going to think that I'm not working uh, like a martyr, I'm not like, and and I think that plays as much of a role into the mental health, into the corrosive nature of our industry as anything else. And then the media gets to double dip later on when they get to write the expose about the chef who fucking went batshit crazy because they were, you know, in the middle of a divorce, not sleeping, constantly working, drinking too much. Uh, already either a rageaholic or having ADHD and having irritability and not being like, you name it. Right. And that's where I'm talking about the press having some level of responsibility to levy some context to have, you know, when we talk about pricing, right? Like you just talked about it, you know, you know, I never hear in either a critique or any like announcement when they talk about anything that has to do with the price of a restaurant is what is the restaurant financially having to go through to be open? How expensive is their rent? How, uh, how, you know, how well are people paid? What do they pay? You know, what farms are they, you know, uh, sourcing every single thing from like uh, all this stuff, like to, to something as minor as do they peel their own garlic and how much does labor cost? Right. And I think that that is my, ultimately the issue that I take with food media is that there is this thing in which they profit at every turn. Things are going good, they're profiting. Things are going bad, they're profiting more. Things are in the middle, they're going to start finding ways to write certain things. Uh, hey, do you have a cupcake roundup? Are you doing anything for, uh, for you know, um, Valentine's Day? Can we write about your, your uh, you know, red velvet bullshit that you're uh, on your menu, right? And there is constantly this thing in which the press is partaking at every single turn, yet right now we find ourselves at an existential point of this, you know, of the existence of this, this industry. And I think that there needs to be more accountability and more ownership taken by the press who partakes in this industry. Do you, do you think that the press is too selfish? It's always it's always what's better for them. I don't think all uh, I don't think all press or all people that participate in the press are selfish, but I do think that the dynamic between the food media and reality. Candy. No, not reality. I w well, sure, let's call it reality. Like or or just say like on uh, like boots on the ground. Right. Is I think that the food media has a very self-centered role or a very self-centered perspective and they don't recognize the role that they play in the industry they think that they're outside of the industry 
and they don't realize they play a role in the industry. Mm, I don't know, David. I don't know. Tell I me think, why. I Tell think, me why. Well, because it's just not the nature of journalism. I mean, on a fundamental level, it's just, I just don't think it is. I mean, I, listen, I, let's go back for one second. You know, you were talking about the fact that people get called out for behavior that maybe, you know, is, is uh, in part caused by certain mental health issues. Now, let's say I'm a journalist, right? I get a, I get a report. Someone, someone tips me off that so-and-so is a, you know, raving lunatic in their restaurant. Maybe they throw stuff and scream at people and all this stuff. Okay. So I look into it. Now, if I'm doing my job well, and I, I am able to speak to that chef and that person uh, is gonna share with me that they're, you know, going through something mentally or having a, you know, some kind of a, ch a mental health challenge or it's something they've struggled with or, uh, you know, then maybe that would give me some important information as someone writing about that behavior. But it all starts with the fact of the behavior itself, you know? Um, I, I think it's asking a lot for journalists to uh, kind of extrapolate or, or kind of imagine what might be going on. Like, think of an article like No, a it's not imagining. Come on. Extrapolate, well, no, no, maybe. It, imagining, I mean, not. Like, I don't mean imagining like making it up. I mean to sort of guess. I, no, I'm, I'm asking them to do their job, right? If they're going to write something that can potentially ruin someone's career or a certain amount of years of their career, they need to back it up with context, with more than just, uns, you know, substantiated claims, right? Like there, there, there is, you know, people have been working their entire lives to do that. Well, I mean, at least I have, and I know that there's other people who have, um, you know, I know that this industry has become easier and easier to kind of like jump into at certain levels, but like, for me, this is a lifelong venture, you know, and where I'm at in my career today is after 20 something years of doing this, only in the past three years have I recognized that I need to completely overhaul my emotional state, my, my psychological state, going to therapy, changing lifestyles, not consuming alcohol in the sums that I was doing before, um, you know, diff medication at some points, you know, therapeutics, all these different things that will help my emotional and psychological well-being in order for me to be successful in this industry. Nobody showed me that. Right. Like there wasn't there wasn't anyone in this industry that was able to kind of like guide me in that direction. I had to figure that out. And there are so many folks suffering in this industry. Right. And I think that there is a level of responsibility to go deeper and to do your job. If your job is to write about something, well, then write about it in a more, you know, holistic way to where there's more than just more than just, hey, we spoke to three people and yes, they confirmed this person's a complete asshole, right? It's Listen, like- I, I agree with that, but all right, here's an example, okay? Um, I'm not gonna use names, but everyone will probably know who I mean and I don't have any particular knowledge, okay? Uh, beyond what everyone else knows or has read. Uh, but there was a very famous chef uh, about three years ago, a uh, big uh, article came out exposing all kinds of sexual harassment and assault, right? Mm -hmm. In New York. 
Okay? Now, every single story that I've read or saw in on television or in the in the in the news, in the you know, written print or online media, this person was basically blackout drunk. Okay? Now, the behavior is not even in question, and that person subsequently gave a couple of interviews, made a statement, acknowledged uh, a lot of the behavior, okay? Now, my own personal conclusion from everything I've read, and I'm not saying this excuses anything, but it seems to me like this person, I don't know if they qualify as an alcoholic, but it seems to me very clear that this person drinks way too much and does really bad things when they're drunk, okay? Now, those are things that are part and parcel of this industry, or at least have been for a long time. And they're encouraged. What, what were the journalists supposed to do with the information about that chef? Were they not supposed to cover these really awful things that they did? No, I'm not were saying they, that at all. I'm well, not, but, what were, but what were they supposed to do? I'm not saying that at all. But, what, that, but, but how should that have played out differently? So – I'm not sure that it should have played out differently. There's a so I I want to really I, I want to really be clear here. I don't think that there should be an embargo on um you know exposés that call out bad or illegal behavior. I think that that shit needs to get rooted out of our industry and it's corrosive. And I think that I came up in a very brutal segment of the industry that there was, you know, emotional, verbal, and physical abuse. I was never sexually um, harassed or abused, or, or rather, I probably was sexually harassed, but I, I, I never took probably, I, I was never impacted emotionally by it. But I will say that there was a lot of other um, abuse is how we came up and how I came up. And I think that, yes, it needs to get fucking rooted out. And there will be certain sacrificial lambs who are either worse than others or more public than others. And that's going to be what it is. And, and I, I don't have a problem with that getting rooted out. But I do, what I do have a problem with is the way a lot of these things are written in today's world. There seems to be this thing of like, oh, we're canceling this person because they, um, you know, make something up, basically. Like, they were ignorant to a certain new term, right? Like, well, yeah, Sure. Like, they, oh, a, a perfect example, right? Like, they, they misgendered someone. Right. Right? Like, and, and, and it's like, hey, I, they, they constantly misgendered someone. And what I'm saying is, like, yes, we are living in a new world. And people need to adapt, but we also need to recognize that not everyone adapts to everything as fast as you would like them to. And that stuff is getting written about in the same kind of feeling like the same reverence as, you know, like Mario Batali or, or Ken Friedman or, or any of this group of people who there seems to be multiple accounts, including people writing books who have staged with them for months and months and months, if not a year, who are basically sitting there and saying, this was an account at this particular time in which this person did this thing, which is illegal, not to, me not to mention amoral, 
And I have, and, and I think there needs to be some gradation, right? There needs to be a gradation between illegal and like illegal, immoral, and something that hurt your feelings. And the thing that hurt your feelings, I'm not sure it belongs in the press constantly. And I know that's an unpopular position to take these days, but I think that, like I said at the very beginning, it is not illegal to be an asshole. You, you know, and, and yes, people may talk about it in the industry and people may not want to work for you after a while. And that's why you should not be an asshole. And it's not within your best interest to be an asshole, especially for people who are working super hard on your behalf. But I don't think it's press worthy. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I, I, well, this has been a good conversation then because we've, yes, I mean, you're talking about nuance. I, you know, David, honestly, I feel like uh, every, every case I think every subject of an article should be taken at a case-by-case basis and should be considered, and this I think is part of what you're actually talking about, and it's something I've thought a lot about, I've written a little about it, but should be considered, you know, as a person. You know, it should be, you, if you're going to write about somebody uh, and report about somebody, you know, it's, it is on you to understand what happened to understand the power that your platform has over this person's present and future. And, uh, and I think also, uh, you know, from your side of it, David, from the pub, from the subject side of it, I think each journalist should be taken, you know, uh, on a case by case basis, who you trust, who you don't trust. You know, you mentioned people who, um, uh, you know, like they'll, they'll, they'll beat you up one day and then turn around the next day and ask you for a holiday recipe. You know, for years, there's people I know who privately, you know, you mentioned like Eater to them and they hated Eater. They hated it, right? Hated, hated, hated. And then you turn around and they're like in business with them, you know, or yeah. doing a series with them or doing events with them or showing up at their awards. And, you know, uh, I, I wish more people would actually take a stand. I think things would actually probably get better, but that's a very scary thing. It's easier said than done. Yeah. Um, but I do think that, um, yes, I think there has to be nuance. I think there has to be a real, I mean, to me, what you're talking about in large part is empathy. You know, I think to an awful lot of journalists, and I'm not just talking about the, about food media, but I think to an awful lot of journalists, you know, the, they don't, and this is actually baffling to me because I think I'd probably go too far the other way. But I don't think they see the people they're writing about as actual three-dimensional humans with lives and families and friends and, and uh, 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 you know, a stake in what's being written. I think they actually just kind of see the subjects they write about and, and, the, and the landscape those people exist in as just like material. I mean, I really do. I think that's a major dynamic in all media, and I find it bizarre. I find it bizarre. Um, uh, so, yes, I do think there should be, uh, you know, nuance, context, gradation. But I think we are also in a time where, you know, my God, somebody sniffs blood in the water, and it's just an absolute all-on, you know, assault. And... Uh, again, in ways that I just find, uh, this is again where I do try to, 
I do try to understand the other side. You know, I look at the example of, you know, what was written and tweeted and Instagrammed about Metalwood. And, and again, I'm not friends with Chris at all. I've met him once. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm like, how angry must people be to want to kick someone when they're down at, you know, who just literally whose restaurant burned to the ground. I mean, some of the stuff in that article was bad. You know, some of the stuff people described on social media, to be honest, I feel like it felt more in the category of what you're talking about, David, where I was like, yeah, okay, maybe you didn't like that or you didn't like that he said that or you didn't, but like, it's not really worth a takedown, you know? Um, uh, so I, I just, I don't know. I really try to look at all these things individually and um, and evaluate them individually. And I try to look at each, you know, each article or piece of media that way. And I try to look at whatever I'm generating that way. And I really, you know, I really do think it's incumbent on people writing about someone to try to under, to try to understand what you're writing about as well as possible. But having said all that, you know, I've had these arguments about people who write nasty reviews and how I think there should not even be such a thing as a nasty review. You know, I think it should be a really painful thing to write a bad review. I don't think it should be a gleeful exercise, you know, and I've had so many writers and editors say to me, oh, but that's what sells newspapers, you know, which is kind of an outdated way to express it. But, um, you know, but that's what sells newspapers. And yeah, I'm like, well, Andrew, yeah, I'm just going to say you're showing your age. What? No, people still say that. That's what sells newspapers. That's what sells newspapers. I say that. People it's say all that called. To me. It's called clickbait now, Andrew. Listen, <laughs> believe it or not, we're not going to solve the world's problems today. But I will tell you the the name of the game, the word of the day is nuance. Right? There's like nuance and probably context, and I think that is what is missing in the public discourse constantly today. And that's in any industry, and I think that it's not specific to ours. We need more nuance. We need more context, and you will not get it in the byline of an article, and you will certainly not get it in a 150-character tweet on Twitter. No, you won't, but can I ask you something, David? And I really I really mean this sincerely. And, it, uh, you know, have you ever considered, uh, you know, shooting off, I don't know what journalists in town you you know or are cordial with or not, um, but have you ever, I don't know if somebody like Salil would do it because she's the critic now, but have you ever thought about reaching out to one or two journalists and saying, hey, you know what, there's some stuff on my mind, I'd like to have an off-the-record coffee? Yes, and I have. Have you done that? I've done it. I've asked before, I've had people turn me down saying they thought it was inappropriate. I've done it before and had people do it. And was it productive? Mm, not really. I don't think so. Right. I, I don't think so because nothing's changed, right? Like I, sure, I got it off my chest or I said how I felt about something. What about, what about adding that, adding this kind of uh, general conversation about the food media and, and having their responsibility, adding that into like your new segment you just did with Channel 2, which was fantastic, by the way. Like, I didn't hear you really mention this point in there. Like, do you think bringing that in is, is just taboo or? No, I don't think it's taboo. It just was irrelevant to that conversation, right? I'm willing, listen, I'm willing to have this conversation with 
anyone and everyone on the record. And, and the truth is like, you know, like we talked about before, there's, there's different folks in the food media and they're not, you know, they're all not, uh, you know, trying out to go out there and, and play the gotcha game with people. Right. Like as, as you brought up, you know, I just, I feel like, you know, the world needs more Jonathan Gold in it. The world needs more people, A, who are uh, recognizing the fact that if you're going to write about something, wanna write a, you should want to write about it for the right reasons because you want to like it, right? right? Because you want to tell people about it in a very factual way. And when he didn't like a place, usually he didn't write about it. Or if there was things that he thought were off, he would say them in a very factual way without editorializing about that particular thing, right? And and I thought that that was important. I because, also th- because he has empathy, right? Yeah, I think that it was an e- extreme amount of empathy that he probably had. And he also was groundbreaking in the sense that he would write about things that you didn't see people at that type of publication writing about. He would go out to San Gabriel Valley and write about, you know, the best, you know, Hargau or, 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 or other type of dumpling or, or, you know, pho shop or, or he'd go out to, you know, Eastern parts of LA and, and, and talk about, you know, a pupusa place or, or something, you know, and, and that was not the norm during that time. And I think that the world could use more people who empathize not only with the subjects that they're writing about, but not in such, you know, it, they're not everything needs to be such a, I would say, fantastic, uh, you know, I don't even know what word I'm trying to f- find. It's, it's basically not everything needs to be so like, Sunshine and rainbows? No, it's not even about sunshine and rainbows. I would say not everything needs to be so, like, blown out of fucking proportion, right? We're right. in this... Sen- sensational. Sensational. Sen- exactly. That's the word I'm looking for. Not everything needs to be so sensational. Like, some things can just be talked about in a very matter-of-fact way. This is how it is. This is blah, blah, blah. The tortilla is made like this, blah, 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 this and this and this. You know, they use this. The prices are a little higher. I spoke to the owner. They said that's because of the sourcing techniques, and they, they said because you know, labor cost is, has gone up over the past 10 years yeah. or their rent has gone up this much and blah, blah, blah. And that's why we noticed that this taco but shop how, is a dollar more than the one that's three blocks away. But how hard is it, and maybe Andrew, you can answer this, how hard is it as a journalist to not interject your own opinion when you're, when you're covering something? If you're trying to just be, you know, neutral, how do you... I'm not saying you need to be all the way neutral, and I'm not saying you can't editorialize at all, but I do think editorializing about the price of something is for me completely inappropriate unless you are willing to go out and find out why the price is different. If you're not willing to spend the time to sit there and find out, is the rent different? Is the property tax basis different? Right, right. Is the, has the labor changed? Has the going rate for managers changed? Has, um, is the person using one type of pork Right. Uh, that that's more ethically raised than another type of pork is, you know, is one person getting peeled garlic and the other one is paying people to peel garlic that they paid a premium for. Like all those things matter. And if you're just going to do something lazy, like say, well, this taco is $5, uh, which, you know, I think is not. And th- here comes the editorializing part, which I don't think is like a great value compared to the $3 taco a few blocks away. That makes sense. Well, why not? Do you, do you c- tell me why it's not the 
value is they didn't do the work to do the deep dive to it, understand it. And that's my issue. Got and it. that's my issue with the editorializing. If you're going to editorialize, you owe the readership and the person that you're writing about. So, the, so then, the if, context. if the journalist is you know crying about the price of, of of a taco, then they can interject and say, well. But then again, they are doing farm-raised cattle and they're doing everything you just mentioned. And if they did that, then I would be like, well, then you're now giving me the choice as a reader, that choice to basically say, well, actually, I want to spend that dollar. I I don't feel like I'm just being ripped off because this person has decided arbitrarily to just raise the prices because they think now this neighborhood is gentrified. No, I now am making a choice to say, well, no, I actually love those values. I'm going to align with those yeah. things. And and I think that's, Andrew, to my point, I think that's what's missing in some of the editorializing. I don't disagree, but I also feel like, you know, look, here's a totally this, you know, it, this, this doesn't, this doesn't excuse any shortcut taking, uh, but it does help explain things. You know, everyone's overworked, right? Everyone, every newsroom is smaller. People are doing more work. They have less time to invest in each individual piece. You know, a lot of places don't have fact checkers anymore. Um, sure, but if I were to make that argument when somebody's calling someone out for being a, a maniac in the kitchen, and I were to say, well, you know what? Everyone's overworked. Would that fly? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not. I, I started this by saying it doesn't excuse anything. I'm just trying to give some insight. But the, the one thing I would say, though, is um, listen. If there's things you know that you're vulnerable to being dinged for, I would say the the path of least resistance is to actually, you know, try to take some action in the way of ways you can communicate these things to both your, you know, your 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 general customers and to any journalist, you know, a page on your website that explains your sourcing and maybe in an elegant way mentions this is why, you know, you're a little more expensive than certain other places. You know, there are yes, proactive- I, I agree with there, you. I agree with you on that. There are proactive ways. If you know there's things that you're vulnerable to, there are very simple in, in the current, you know, in the internet age, there are some very simple things one can do on their menu, their website, whatever, uh, to easily have that information there for anybody who's going to write about you. I agree I, think, I agree with I you on that, that Andrew. More, I think that is a more sane, uh, not sane, I think that's a more sanity producing approach than expecting, you know, the things to change on the other side of the fence. And I do think it is the other side of the fence. Listen, you know, I, you I, know, I agree with you. Not, yeah. I agree with you on that. I think that the best defense is a good offense, you know, and I yes. think that you need to be proactive, but I do want to call out one thing that, you know, there is a certain amount of privilege in that as well, right? You're talking about people who have uh, sophisticated understandings of how to work websites and social media. They have PR teams who help them with messaging and so on and so forth, right? Like there are people I know who open up a little cafe on the corner with their significant other and they are just dog ass tired and they're making their way to the farmer's market. They're buying food just the same way as I'm buying food at my restaurant and they're serving in a certain way. And people are coming there and they're like, well, I don't understand why, why your piece of like toast with stuff on it or your bowl with, you know, things in it is like, you know, a couple bucks more than this other place. And, you know, sure. They can be like, yeah, well, you know, like I did all this stuff. 
right? And I can tell you in the moment, but a lot of people aren't going to say that to you. So listen, all that being said, like I said, I don't think we're going to solve the world's problems in one podcast, but all the more reason for you to come back on and discuss with us again. We can talk about other highly cancelable conversations and topics the next time. Um, I do want to say a couple things. First of all, we talked about your book, which is Chef's, Dr- Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll, which I think is an exceptional book. And if you are someone who either is interested in our industry or in our industry, I think that it is um, uh, you know, an incredible book to read because it will give you something that we've talked about on this pod for quite some time, which is context. It will give you an understanding of what's gone on and how it's gone on. And it will just, it's, it's an entertaining read. Andrew is an entertaining writer and, uh, you know, a very knowledgeable one. Uh, also he has a podcast. Anyone who's listened to this podcast for long enough knows that a lot of the inspiration that I had to want to start this thing with Manny was being on Andrew's podcast and him giving me the platform to talk about things in long form, which I don't know if you've noticed this, I have a lot of shit to get off my chest. So this has been really, uh, you know, productive for me. And I think my therapist thanks you, Andrew, for giving me this outlet. Um, I have a deep amount of adoration and um, just respect and enjoyment uh, in just talking and spending time with Andrew. Um, Andrew, where can the people find you if they are so inclined to engage with you on the worldwide interwebs? Wow. Well, first of all, thank you for all that, David. That's very humbling. Um, I appreciate it. Um, uh, also, can I, am I allowed to say this on air, that the name of your corporation? Yeah, Knives at Dawn, Inc. I, I took that from the book you wrote. Yeah, that is the most, maybe the most flattering thing anyone's ever shared with me. Yeah, um, so so I'll t- t- just say a little tidbit, basically, about uh, seven, eight years ago, I needed to start my own little kind of business or corporation uh, to do, like, events and take in money and pay people and do all that stuff. And I was like, I need to name this thing. And the coolest name I had ever heard uh, was this book that Andrew wrote about, um, you know, getting ready and ultimately competing in the Boku store, uh, which is, you know, if you don't know about it, you should go and read that book because it's very illuminating and it's an amazing book also. But it's called Knives at Dawn. And I thought it was really cool. It's like the same idea as dueling, right? Pistols at Dawn and... I, I, I loved that name. And even before I knew Andrew, I, I stole that name from him. Thank you. And he's uh, never, he's never received a check for it. The easiest place people can find me is I do, I do have a website uh, called andrewtalkstochefs.com. That's also the name of my podcast, but my blog lives on that website now. You can find episodes of the podcast there. You can find links to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you might want to listen and subscribe. Uh, that's really the place to find me. And then on Instagram, the, the show is at Chef Podcast. And personally, my feed is at Tokeland Andrew. That's T-O-Q-U-E, as in the chef's hat, not as in, you know. Token up. Yeah, so it's Tokeland. <laughs> Tokeland Andrew is my personal feed. And again, the show is at Chef Podcast. Andrew, you're a good friend. Um, I enjoy getting to know you a little bit more each year and with each time we're together. Um, I honestly hope that this pandemic, I hope that we're coming around the bend. And if we are coming around the bend one day, I can't wait 
to enjoy another meal with you because you're an amazing human. So thank you very oh, much for being on our show. thank you. Right back at you, and I hope it'll be in San Francisco, and I hope Manny J will be, will be at the table. Absolutely. I'll be there looking forward to meeting you face-to-face as well, brother. Mazel tov. The main ingredient. Ingredient. ingredient.